team's first photograph in spring training, like the day it was announced that the Braves were moving to Milwaukee, they took a team photo and it's actually in, in my book. Half the guys are still wearing baseball caps with the letter B on it because they hadn't made enough hats with the letter M on it. And, you know, the, the move was so abrupt, you know, but it was also because Perini was playing his cards very close to his best. Because the the idea of moving a franchise was very progressive, very aggressive, and um, there was a lot of you know talks you know behind closed doors and and you know in corners to to you know where Perini really had to reassure Major League Baseball and and in this case the National League that you know moving out of Boston and into Milwaukee was the right thing to do. And so when the vote finally happened and it was announced and the news was made public, um, it caught everybody by surprise. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, gang. How are you? Despite all the obstacles, we are back for yet another episode of our favorite podcast exploration of what used to be in professional sports. Yes, good seats still available. Thanks for joining us. If it's your first time here, welcome. Uh, I appreciate you finding us in the uh, vast uh, uh, array of uh, podcast choices to download and listen to. And if you're a return visitor, well, uh, I hope we don't disappoint you, uh, uh, you know, for another episode. But uh, thanks for coming back nonetheless. Uh, today, we're going back to baseball. And uh, we always love talking about baseball because uh, it is a sport that uh, lends itself, I think, probably the most to uh, rich and uh, colorful stories. It's obviously the most chronicled sports in the American landscape. But um, uh, and today, I don't think is any uh, exception. If you're an Atlanta Braves fan and you've somehow figured out a way to uh, enjoy the team and its new digs up in uh, the northern uh, suburbs of of Atlanta, um, you know, you owe it to yourself clearly to know and remember the fact that the Braves are, are probably one of the, if not the longest lasting franchises consecutively uh, in Major League Baseball. They started way back when in the uh, late 1800s as one of the original franchises uh, in those early years and leagues uh, and uh, wended its way through uh, some relatively morbid years uh, in Boston. But then uh, really uh, took the world by storm, especially in Milwaukee when they moved uh, to Milwaukee in 1953 uh, and lasted from 53 to 65. 1965, they did the Braves of Milwaukee. And that's our conversation today uh, with our guest, Bill Pavletic, uh, who is the author of uh, a, a wonderful book uh, about the Braves. And uh, it's not easy to find a whole bunch of stuff about the specific time period that uh, the Braves were in Milwaukee. The book is called Milwaukee Braves Heroes and Heartbreak. Uh, and uh, Bill is also uh, the uh, writer, director, producer of uh, two documentary films about the Milwaukee Braves, uh, one of which is called A Braves New World that uh, he did with and for Milwaukee Public Television back in 2009. And a couple of years prior to that, did a, actually a um, 50th anniversary celebrating the 1957 championship world championship team uh, of the Milwaukee Braves. That was uh, that film came out in 2007, was on uh, Fox Sports back in the day. Um, so Bill uh, Pavletic is uh, probably uh, arguably the uh, one of the most knowledgeable folks uh, around the history and the uh, import of the Milwaukee version of the Braves 
uh, from the late 50s and early 60s. That's our conversation today. Uh, it's, uh, it's really intriguing. Uh, some very interesting things that I did not know about the team. And uh, it's very also interesting to understand the uh, unique dynamic that existed for a relatively brief period of time between the city of Milwaukee, uh, the state of Wisconsin, and this baseball team, especially when it arrived. Uh, it was uh, clearly a love affair. Uh, not a long-lasting one, but um, uh, it has uh, uh, repercussions, and it also has some very uh, interesting dynamics uh, to the game of baseball writ large that uh, I think arguably are not uh, fully uh, well known. And hopefully you will uh, understand some of those from our conversation with Bill Pavletic uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, of course, uh, before we get there, we do want to uh, tip uh, our baseball cap to our friends at uh, Audible, who has been kind enough to uh, allow us to continue to promote their product. And uh, we appreciate you giving them a try. If you haven't already, please do so. Uh, and of course, by trying, what that means is a free audiobook download for you to enjoy and a free uh, uh, use of uh, of the Audible service for 30 days. Uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats uh, to uh, initiate such. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's your place to uh, get a free audiobook download and uh, a free uh, uh, exploration, if you will, of uh, for 30 days of the Audible service. Uh, you can cancel at any time. And, uh, you know, look, there's uh, you have one shot for free to get uh, one of 180,000 plus titles uh, in every genre or just about every genre you can think of uh, in audiobook form. Uh, if you can't find something from that vast array of choice, uh, you know, perhaps you're on the wrong planet. Give it a try. You'll love it. Uh, I do. Uh, it is. Uh, it's uh, you know, audiobooks are awesome. And uh, Audible is probably the best at it. Uh, audibletrial.com slash good seats. That's for your free audiobook download and your free 30 day trial. Thanks for giving it a try. We appreciate it. I'm sure Audible does too. And um, we appreciate their sponsorship very much. All right. So uh, we are uh, done with our promotional spiel and uh, we are now moving on to our uh, interesting, as always, conversation with Bill Pavletic uh, about uh, the Milwaukee Braves uh, from the 50s and early 1960s. Enjoy. I grew up in uh, in Mequon, Wisconsin, right outside of Milwaukee, and I grew up during the age where the Milwaukee Brewers, you know, went to the World Series. So you had heroes like Robin Yount and Paul Molitor and Cecil Cooper and Raleigh Fingers and and, you know, I was really excited about them and, you know, would love bragging about them. And then everyone's like, wow, if you think these Milwaukee Brewers are awesome, you should have been here for the Milwaukee Braves. So I always grew up with this passion to learn more about the exploits of Hank Aaron and, and Warren Spahn and Eddie Matthews and Lou Burdett and Del Crandall. And, uh, you know, I ended up, you know, loving baseball as a kid, loving sports as a kid. And, you know, dove into radio, television, and film as a career. And I began doing documentary films for the History Channel back when the History Channel produced documentaries on history, not on flea markets and rummage sales. <laughs> and um, came across a book called Henry Aaron's Summer Up North, which chronicled his uh, year of minor league baseball up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, when he played for the Bears. And it was a fascinating story. And it really kind of 
sent me on this baseball journey where, you know, it really rekindled my love for baseball, really rekindled my love of history. And it really, you know, brought me into the world of the Milwaukee Braves in a very organic fashion. And I decided to, you know, pursue that passion and I wanted to write a book about them. So I, you know, started doing research and I started pitching the book and it was amazing how many people were interested in the story, but at the same time said, we, you know, there's no market for a dead baseball franchise because Atlanta didn't acknowledge the Braves years in Milwaukee because they want you to focus on the Atlanta years. And Milwaukee doesn't want to focus on the Braves because they want you to focus on the Milwaukee Brewers. So um, I ended up after a lot of diligence and a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of rejection letters. Um, my book, Milwaukee Braves Heroes and Heartbreak found a home at the Wisconsin Historical Society Press and I couldn't be happier. Well, so that's that's really interesting. So we, you know, a lot of um, our various journeys into uh, leagues and teams and things, you know, there are certain, you know, I, th there is a certain uh, a nostalgia or gap in such, right, for for those teams and leagues, and and you know, perhaps there's a wistful memories or financial problems, or they, frankly, you know, they, as as time goes on, you know, people just sort of lose touch or forget them all. But to me, these are like very sort of these are nooks and crannies of, of history that. Um, potentially become or could become forgotten uh, without sort of, uh, you know, delving back into them and trying to at least uh, record them in some way, shape or form. And, and you know, I think it's not lost on, um, look, I'm a, I'm a soccer guy by, by history. I, I grew up watching North American soccer league teams come and go back in the 70s and early 80s. And I see Major League Soccer mm -hmm. today uh, sort of uh, on one level embracing some of the history of some of those past teams that uh, were long forgotten. And yet with the other arm uh, kind of pushing them away because uh, they want people to your point earlier, you know, you want to kind of focus on today's league and, and growing it today without sort of the, the pesky uh, uh, stories of, of the past that may not be convenient. Well, not, not even so much if they're convenient or not, but you know, they don't have a direct financial tie to the current organization or the current franchise or the current league, you know, um, you know, so that's where, you know, like the, the USFL is a prime example where, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia for that, but because the NFL does not financially benefit from the nostalgia of the USFL, they distance themselves from it. Or, you know, some of the old minor league hockey leagues and franchises, or like you said, the, you know, the North American Soccer League, you know, or the World Football League. They're all fascinating leagues. They've all had an impact on sports. And um, that's one reason why when I first thought about doing this book on the Milwaukee Braves, because there wasn't a real, you know, there wasn't a lot in the marketplace, you know, as far as books and kind of capturing the team's history, other than Bob Beagie wrote a phenomenal book called Milwaukee Braves, a baseball eulogy. Um, there wasn't a lot out there capturing the history of the Milwaukee Braves at the time. And so I was like, well, this is perfect. I'm going to get to tell all these great stories about, you know, everyone's favorite ball players, you know, on the field and how they won the 57 World Series and, and how when they arrived in Milwaukee, they were beloved. They were treated like rock stars. And the, the further I went down the rabbit hole, so to speak, 
the more fascinating I found the Milwaukee Braves story because one aspect that was never really chronicled at length was the impact and influence the Braves had on all of professional sports. Because when they relocated in the spring of 1953, it was the first major professional sports franchise to re well, it was the first professional baseball franchise to relocate in 50 years. And so the Braves moved from Boston to Milwaukee. They have a phenomenal first year in 53. They break all these attendance records and it forced major league baseball to reexamine its business model. Because up until that point, most of the major cities on the Eastern seaboard shared two teams. Philadelphia had the, the Phillies, the athletic, you know, before the Braves moved, Boston shared the Red Sox with the Braves. New York had three teams with the Dodgers, Giants, and Yankees. Um, you know, even St. Louis had two teams with the Browns and the Cardinals. So all of your your baseball teams were really, you know, shoved into very specific corners and very specific metropolitan locations. And the Braves' success in a region, because at that point Milwaukee was considered more of a region than a metropolis, it forced baseball to start re-examining places like Dallas and Kansas City and Minneapolis. And it essentially, the Braves' successful move after the 53 season proved, you know, you could make baseball work in these other baseball-starved areas. And it created an urban arms race where cities started competing with each other to acquire this major league status of obtaining a, a sports franchise because, you know, when you compared the, you know, the financials, especially like on a city and a community level, pre-baseball franchise and post-baseball franchise in Milwaukee, you know, between say 52 and 53, you saw the financial impact. There were very tangible numbers associated with the Braves uh, arriving in Milwaukee and whereas other cities, you know, baseball grew in popularity with the city. So there wasn't this, you know, line in the sand where you could easily track the financial and also the intangible influences of community pride of a, a sports franchise coming to your city. So Milwaukee really changed the game on that level. And what was also fascinating about that was how progressive the the community leaders of the city of Milwaukee, the county of Milwaukee, and, and all of Southeast Wisconsin were as far as they built a baseball stadium. They built Milwaukee County Stadium prior to the Braves agreeing to come to Milwaukee. And they built that city essentially as bait, as lure, to say, hey, we got this beautiful stadium. Who wants it? And you know, that was really progressive thinking. So that also, you know, was one of the, the blueprints for, you know, the urban arms race and the com the combat that would happen between communities to try and lure franchises away from other cities. Well, maybe maybe we should uh, uh, kind of uh, go back to 52, 53, when uh, the beginnings of that process were, were kind of underway, right? So the owner at the time is this, uh, uh, I don't even know what we're... Uh, uh, Lou Perini's uh, uh, background and his source of money were, but he he owned the team after I guess uh, uh, buying it uh, when it was still in Boston. Uh, maybe you can give 
our audience a sense of sort of what was sort of swirling in his head with this franchise that was clearly on the decline, at least attendance wise, uh, and even on the well, on field right in, in Boston. <laughs> Lou Perini was a construction magnate. He was a big deal in the construction world where he got big government contracts. He was working all over the Eastern seaboard. Um, and he and some of his business partners who were nicknamed the three little steam shovels, um, purchased the Braves when they were in Boston. It was a fledgling franchise. They, they were always the second team in Boston. And he eventually bought out his partners and took control of the team. And first and foremost, Lou Perini was a businessman. He loved baseball. He loved the, the glamour of owning a team being able to take potential clients to games, put them in, you know, at the time, the owner's box and whining and dining them during a baseball game. And, um, you know, and he loved baseball, but the Braves were always a business first. And even though they, they went to the 1948 world series, um, eventually was into the Indians. Um, the team never did well attendance wise. You know, financially, they were always struggling because they were the second team in Boston. And what happened was, you know, Milwaukee started to court him. And ironically enough, Bill Veck, who used to own the Milwaukee Brewers, which was the Braves minor league team um, at the time, um, was trying to lure the two of them to Milwaukee as a major league franchise. So the St. Louis Browns and the the Boston Braves are both being lured to Milwaukee and Bill Veck essentially had uh, a handshake agreement to move to Milwaukee, but Lou Perini blocked it um, prior to the 52 season because he owned the, the rights to the city of Milwaukee because he had the minor league uh, Milwaukee Brewers franchise there, which was under the affiliation of the Braves. So, um, you know, it, it kind of put Luprini into a, a pickle because here he refused another major league team to come in, but, you know, and, and everyone was pretty fired up about it, but, you know, behind the scenes and, you know, behind closed doors, Luprini was quietly and very cloak and daggerishly um, making plans to move the Braves as early as, you know, in, in, in like 52, because I got to interview Lou Perini's son, David Perini, who was off at college at the time. And one time he came home from college and had dinner with his mom and dad and this man named Fred Miller, who, is, you know, at the time was running Miller Brewery. And Fred Miller was literally at the dinner table talking to Lou in front of mother, in front of David's mother, um, about, you know, who Milwaukee would offer Lou Perini if the Braves came to Milwaukee and they were speaking in code and, and David and his mother had no idea what, what this conversation was about until after it was announced that the Braves were moving to Milwaukee. But Fred Miller was a very instrumental part of the, uh, the, the group that lured Lou Perini to Milwaukee because Fred Miller, more than anybody, was ahead of his time as far as realizing the power and influence of marketing 
and, you know, associating your brand with products and, and first and foremost, so how important it was to have a major league sports team associated with your community. And, you know, Lou Prini, you know, announced the, the Braves move to Milwaukee during spring training at 53. And literally overnight, they moved from Boston to Milwaukee and, you know, the rest is a is history. Well, I want to get back to the uh, to that in a second, the specific uh, 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 dynamic of those weeks during spring training. But before that, do I have this right that that Perini was also being wooed by, or at least other cities were interested in the Braves, uh, including Montreal, Denver, Toronto, Houston, and Dallas, and Milwaukee kind of somehow stood out, or maybe uh, later in the game actually, you know, got ahead of all the, even those markets. Well, Milwaukee had a stadium that was plug and play. It was ready to move in. It was a major league caliber stadium. The other cities weren't quite as up to speed. Um, you know, also Fred Miller and his influence with, you know, the Miller brand, you know, was important. And um, also for Lou Perini to move to Milwaukee, there was a lot less paperwork because he already owned the rights to the city in the major league baseball size because he had his, you know, top farm club station there. So, um, Milwaukee was always his number one choice. Yeah. That's interesting because I mean, uh, it may be in hindsight, right. But you look at all those other markets I just mentioned, Milwaukee is clearly the smallest of all of them. But, you know, if you go back to, you know, say April 1st, 1953, before the move actually happened, you know, all those other cities, you know, it was all untested ground. It was all, you know, it was a frontier. It was the wild west as far as league expansion because it it hadn't happened in 50 years. So, you know, those communities might've been bigger, but, you know, Milwaukee being the underdog definitely, you know, I, I guess you could say their their plan was really focused. The entire community was behind the franchise. And, you know, and that's where I go back to Fred Miller because he was a very influential man. I mean, he was running a multi-million dollar brewery at the time that was, you know, exploding because that's when Miller was the champagne of beers. And, um, you know, from everything, all the documentation, all the interviews, um, you know, even the, even when you like look at old photos, it's like when the parade, when the, the Braves had their welcome parade in Milwaukee, um, you know, before the first game in 53, Fred Miller is everywhere. It's like he's a member of the team. You know, he's, you know, he's in the car with Lou Perini. You know, it's like he's, he's the guy. Interesting. <laughs> so, it's almost, you know, yeah, it's almost like he's sort of the, the hidden, uh, hidden, uh, uh, actor here in all this, uh, this yeah, move. He, Yes, he is the X factor. All right. So, um, let, let, but the but the move to Milwaukee wasn't, especially in those weeks during spring training, wasn't necessarily smooth. I mean, I think first of all, I mean the the fact that um, uh, that Perini accepted this offer apparently during spring training, leading up to the nineteen fifty three season. I mean, that just seems outlandish on its face because who moves a team a few weeks before the season starts? And, you know, you can kind of tell the chaos because most people didn't find out until, 
you know, it hit the papers, you know, it's kind of like today, you know, and people don't find out, you know, people find out, you know, the facts or news, you know, because it hits the internet, not because they get a phone call. Um, and you know, the, the team's first photograph in spring training, like the day it was announced that the Braves were moving to Milwaukee, they took a team photo and it's actually in, in my book, half the guys are still wearing baseball caps with the letter B on it because they hadn't made enough hats with the letter M on it. And, you know, the, the move was so abrupt, you know, but it was also because Perini was playing his cards very close to his best because the, the idea of moving a franchise was very progressive, very aggressive. And, um, there was a lot of, you know, talks, you know, behind closed doors and, and, you know, in corners to, to, you know, where Perini really had to reassure major league baseball. And, and in this case, the national league that, you know, moving out of Boston and into Milwaukee was the right thing to do. And so when the vote finally happened and it was announced and the news was made public, um, it caught everybody by surprise. Well, uh, it's interesting. I dug a little deeper here. My understanding is that there was a a potentially pivotal week in March of of 53 where, if I have this right, correct me if I'm not, uh, the the league apparently voted and approved the move, but the uh, commissioner, uh, uh, Frick, came in and uh, stopped it on the 7th of of March in 53, uh, arguing, like I maybe argued earlier, that was kind of too soon to, to the beginning of the season. And then Perini, I guess, maybe in a choreographed way, kind of announced that the move was off. And in steps the uh, some of the state officials from Wisconsin, because apparently around that time, the uh, U.S. Congress had been investigating baseball for its antitrust protection. And they r- rattled the cages. And then I guess Frick backed down a week later and and the move was allowed to happen. So it seems like there was some static, some real static for a good week there that that maybe this team would be moving, but they may be not moving and then then ultimately moving again. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, the the move at the time was so gigantic and so, um, you know, against, you know, what most traditionalists were thinking, you know, it's it's not surprising that there was, you know, a lot of forwards and backwards. I mean, you even see it now, like with the Oakland Raiders potential move to Las Vegas or, you know, the Chargers move from San Diego to Los Angeles where, um, even after a team announces it's moving, there's still all of this, you know, scuttlebutt about, you know, is it really happening? Do they have all their ducks lined up? Um, you know, some of it's true, some of it's rumors, some of it's, you know, hard feelings. Um, you know, I mean, as I always like to say, you know, in the end, the Braves moved. So, you know, that's history is written by the winners. And so in this case, it's written by the Braves who, um, you know, got to Milwaukee. And, um, you know, we can definitely get into it later. But what the, the irony is, is how the blueprint that Milwaukee used to ultimately lure the Braves out of Boston was used against them by Atlanta. But we'll save that for later. Well, sure. OK, but let, let's so let's talk about 53 then, because what a move, right? Because instantly it was proven you know, to be wildly successful, right? Yes. Yeah. They, they ended up breaking attendance records. 
you know, they ended up, you know, obviously going from basement dwellers to, you know, being in the pennant race until the end. Um, you know, the players, you know, were treated like rock stars. They couldn't walk into a restaurant without, you know, they would be, you know, their meals would be comped. They'd walk into a grocery store. They walk out with free groceries. You know, they had, uh, you know, like freezers in the, in the, in the clubhouse that were stocked full of ice cream and milk and meats, you know, all the local vendors, you know, wanted to be associated with the Milwaukee Braves and this winning organization. And, um, you know, the, you know, and then obviously the, the intangibles that Milwaukee enjoyed from the Braves, you know, because Milwaukee County owned the stadium. And even though, they, I want to say, charged the Braves a dollar rent that first year, um, something ludicrous like that, because they just wanted the, the team in Milwaukee. Um, you know, the the city and the county still made tons of money because, you know, they owned the parking, they had their hands on the concessions in the stadium. They, you know, obviously they increased bus routes to get to Milwaukee County Stadium, which was the first stadium not in the heart of a metropolitan area. Um, you know, Milwaukee County Stadium, which is now where Miller Park is located, is out in the Miami Valley, probably about 10 miles west of downtown Milwaukee. And there was tons of parking. It, you know, it was the first stadium built with a parking lot in mind because in the 50s, you know, this is when, you know, post-World War II, everyone's moving into the suburbs. And everyone's starting to drive cars. And, you know, that was one of Walter O'Malley's big gripes with his reasons for leaving Brooklyn was that the city wouldn't give him a parking lot. And Ebbets Field only held like five parking spots. And he's like, the future is cars and parking and that creates more revenue. And, and so he, you know, he saw what Lou Perini did with, with County Stadium in Milwaukee and was like, look at all that parking. That is lots of money. So, you know, all of these new revenue streams were created for the city and county of Milwaukee and the state of Wisconsin that we that went beyond ticket sales and concessions at the ballpark that really, you know, in addition to the team being successful on the field, were, you know, outrageously successful financially. Yeah. So what's also pretty interesting to me is that, um, you know, the Braves in Boston, their last season uh, had a I think a, they had a winning percentage of like 418. They were like 64 and 89. And in their first year in Milwaukee, um, they had a very significant and substantial winning record of uh, I think it was 92 and 62. Um, mm hmm. Uh, you know, I, I guess a move is maybe good for the soul, but this seems a little ridiculous. I mean, how do you go from re relatively bland and moribund <laughs> to, you know, uh, clearly not winning the, the pennant at that point, but but that's a pretty dramatic turnaround on the field that first year. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of it probably is, like I've mentioned, the intangibles, the fact that these players were beloved, beloved, and, you know, you know, they probably went out and tried a little harder, you know, and, um, you know, they were very visible in the community and, you know, 
and celebrated and you know it 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 boosts it boosts a man's pride you know when when you treat it like that you want to go out and do you know hustle a little harder you know but also um the braves kind of had a youth movement when they when they arrived in milwaukee where you know when you look at the roster turnover between 52 and 53 you know, Eddie Matthews was a rookie in Boston in 52 and he really kind of hit his stride when he got to Milwaukee and, you know, Billy Bruton, you know, was in center field and, you know, and, and Del Crandall that just kind of showed up and you had your Wiley veterans like, you know, Warren Spahn and, and, you know, um, I'm Joe Adcock, but, you know, for the most part, the Braves, you know, very quickly turned over their roster and most of the, the the faces and names you associate with the Milwaukee Braves really really hit their stride when they arrived in Milwaukee and you know that you know like you know Hank Aaron you know ended up you know playing in '54 and West Covington and you know you know Johnny Logan all those guys you know really really came into their own in, in Milwaukee. And, and that's, that speaks a lot to, um, you know, Bob Quinn's, um, John Quinn's, right? John Quinn, the, the general manager, I get John McHale and then Quinn, Quinn, um, the general manager did a great job stocking the farm system. Yeah. And clearly that started to pay off in the, in the latter part of the fifties, right? Because, you know, 56, they let, they ended one game behind the Dodgers 57. Uh, they won it all, uh, 58, they were in the world series and lost to the Yankees. So, um, maybe you can kind of regale in some of that. Cause clearly not only was the, t- the, uh, the city and the region in love with the team because they had a team, but they also had a championship team and, and one that was competing for championships relatively quickly. Yeah. You know, in 53 and 54 and even 55, they were competitive. They were in the pennant race. If, if you kind of look back in the history books, that's when the Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Yankees seem to be in the World Series every year. And so the, the Braves were close and were close enough, you know, to give, to give a guy hope or, you know, a fan hope and, you know, but they, they always would fall short. Um, during, uh, the 56 season, they, um, Charlie Grimm was their manager. They ended up, um, relieving him of his duties because management thought he was too, uh, player friendly and brought in Fred Haney. And Fred Haney ended up, uh, steering the franchise to its World Series victory in 57 and seven games over the Yankees. And then falling short in 58 and losing game seven of the 58 World Series after the Braves had a three to one series lead. And then even in 59, you know, they, they, you know, were tied for the best record in, in the National League and then lost a three game playoff to the Dodgers to, to get the pennant there. So essentially within four seasons, you know, they were, two games away from making four World Series appearances. So that's, you know, was, you know, as dominant as you could get in the 50s if your your name wasn't the Brooklyn Dodgers, which is really a testament to John Quinn, the general manager at the time.
Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly. Entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. Well, and clearly some some notable and Hall of Fame names, right? So we mentioned a few of them, but maybe now's a good time to kind of maybe speak about some of uh, the the contributions. I mean, Hank Aaron, right, probably needs no uh, introduction, right? But in 57, he was the league MVP. Uh, he led the league, uh, not a surprise, National League at home runs, right, which obviously would, would accumulate to be a, even a bigger story later in the 70s. Um, I mean, you had a, a pitcher in Lou Burdett who basically, you know, in three games during the World Series was, you know, uh, uh, there's no mistake as to why he was the MVP of that series over the champion Yankee of uh, the, uh, the the Yankees. Um, but maybe you want to talk about Aaron or Burdett, uh, Warren Spahn. You mentioned who was more yeah. of a veteran, and Eddie Matthews clearly, right? Somebody who played in Boston uh, and in Milwaukee and in and actually for for a year in Atlanta. You know, uh, maybe some of the contributions of those guys could be uh, something you could kind of speak to. Yeah, I mean, what what was really cool was you know during that era you know, before free agency, you know, a player was on the team as long as the team wanted him, so to speak. So, you know, your, your, your power three pitcher wise of Warren Spahn, who was the most dominant lefty in baseball at the time. And you had Lou Burdett, who was the perfect complement to Warren Spahn as a right-hander. And then the third one who is, is sometimes kind of forgotten in the history books, but Bob Buell, who, um, you know, the three of them, you know, that was a very formidable trio that, you know, back in the days when it was a essentially a, a four-man rotation, you know, you had to face the three of them. You know, you weren't going to get out of Milwaukee without really getting beat up because the three of them, you know, for for that stretch in the 50s, you know, was the, the most dominant trio in, in on the mound. And then, you know, the lineup of you know, Adcock, Joe Adcock at first base. And then you had Eddie Matthews at third and Hank Aaron. It's like that one, two, three punch in the middle of your lineup. I mean, you know, how do, how do you, how do you survive that on a, on a daily basis? And then, 
you know, you had, you know, Del Crandall behind the plate, who was a gold, you know, a gold glove catcher and also pretty formidable with the bat. You had Johnny Logan, who, you know, in a lot of ways was the, 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 the sassy soul of the franchise, you know, kind of, kind of gave it its swagger. And then, um, you know, Billy Bruton in center field, who, you know, he was, um, you know, he was the speedster. He was the perfect leadoff man. And then, um, in, you know, when the Braves went on their World Series run, they always kind of had this hole at second base and they traded for Red Shandy, uh, the, you know, he's, he's most renowned for being the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame infielder and, and manager. And he, he, you know, joined the Braves during that stretch run and, um, he was phenomenal. I mean, he really brought some leadership and ex- some experience to that team and really helped put them over the edge. And, um, and then, you know, regardless of how talented a roster is, you know, you always find that these teams kind of get a little magic along the way. And the 57 season was Bob Hurricane Hazel. And he, you know, he kind of was brought up and, you know, because of some injuries and he just lit up the national league, you know, on the summer of 57, he had, you know, some outrageous batting average and he was getting clutch hits and, you know, he, you know, in some ways helped carry the team on his back to the world series. And then he came back in 58, you know, was barely hitting the, you know, the Mendoza line around 200 and, you know, within a couple of years, he was out of baseball, but he was definitely that magical catalyst that season that, um, you know, was one of those, you know, kind of lost and forgotten, you know, contributors who, you know, really, really made a difference. And, you know, you also had, you know, the, the other unique personalities like Gene Conley, who is the only player to win a, a World Series ring and an NBA championship because he would spend his summers with the Braves and his winters with the Boston Celtics. And then Ernie Johnson, who was a reliever for uh, that 57 club, became, you know, the, the you know, famous sportscaster for the Atlanta Braves. And, and now his son does a great job with all the TBS games and – I'm just trying to think there's, there's so many unique personalities and, um, you know, contributors to that, you know, especially that 57 world series team. I mean, I could, we could, we could babble for hours about, you know, a lot of their unique uh, contributions and, you know, the, the really fun chemistry because that they had on that, in that clubhouse. Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because I think most people would sort of look at Eddie Matthews and, and Warren Spahn and Hank Aaron, right? All all Hall of Famers and substantially so, um, you know, as kind of like, you know, the, the, the standouts and as, as people look back on that, right? But uh, you, you're clearly referencing that there was uh, clearly other secret sauce afoot there, if you will, uh, with other teams yeah. and players that with other players clearly that, uh, you know, were more the glue and or the sort of standout personalities that you know, make up a team, right? You, you can't just win a, a baseball game and, 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 and have a, a great, great season by, you know, one's individual efforts alone, right? You need a, a team effort consistently, you know, over 162 or whatever the, 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 the number of games that year were. And I think those are the things that are probably most forgotten or fall through the cracks. And that's why I think what, uh, especially your book certainly uh, uh, celebrates a whole bunch of. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, before, you know, a closer was fashionable, you know, back then pitchers would, you know, wanted to pitch nine innings, a complete game. You know, the Braves had Don McMahon, who was, you know, ahead of ahead of his time because he was the guy that gave the ball to in the ninth inning to get a save before baseball recorded saves. And, and you know, the Braves also had uh, local boy Andy Pasco on, on their bench. And, you know, he was kind of in the twilight of his career at the time. He's almost like a player coach. But he, you know, he was one of those clubhouse guys that, you know, kept spirits high and positive. And, you know, whenever he was called upon, he contributed. And, you know, just having having all of those pieces, you know, you can't you can't speak enough to, you know, how Fred Haney managed the lineup every day, you know, and how John Quinn, you know, you know, stocked that roster you know, with lots, lots of different superpowers, so to speak. So the, the love affair clearly is, is very strong. And then throughout the most of the 50s, right? Uh, and uh, now I guess I have to look back at uh, old episodes of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, I guess, for uh, some references, <laughs> right? Because it's clear that that period of time, too. Um, but circa 1960, 61 or so, right? Things start to... I don't know, uh, slow down, right? I, I know in 1961, for example, well, 59, 54 through 59, from what I can tell, uh, the team was averaging uh, each year around uh, 2 million plus fans, which is, you know, amazing, especially during the, the, the 50s, right? Yeah. Boom times, no doubt, but still 2 million fans for a season of anything, uh, regardless of the era, is, is pretty impressive. But in 61, uh, they were down to 1.1 million, and then apparently... 62 through 64, they were averaging in the high, uh, you know, the, the 800,000 fan sort of range. Um, what what mm-hmm. happened? Uh, where, why did the luster start to uh, uh, diminish, <laughs> would you say? Um, well, you know, I, I, the, the Braves' high point in attendance was the 57 season. And they won the World Series and, you know, they, they climbed the mountain. And, um, by 58, it was almost like some of the fan base, you know, the, the, the novelty of the Milwaukee Braves and the phenomena that was the Milwaukee Braves by 58 started to wear off because they had done it. They had won. And now instead of, you know, everyone hoping they would win, they just expected them to win. And so attendance dipped a little bit and it dipped again in 59 and in 60, they were in it, but they weren't, you know, they weren't in it till the end. And, you know, into the 60s, they, they always had, they had a winning record all 13 years they were in Milwaukee. But, you know, in those later years, they really weren't in the pennant race. And, you know, they weren't so terrible. They were lovable losers and they were no longer dominating. So they were just mediocre and mediocre is a kiss of death when it comes to fan interest. And so you, you had the team, you know, battling that, but the, one of the big factors that reared its ugly head in the early sixties was the whole time the Braves were, you know, succeeding in Milwaukee in the fifties, the city and community leaders started to have buyer's remorse where, you know, they essentially rolled out the red carpet for the Braves and gave the Braves the key to the city for free, essentially. 
And now all of a sudden the Braves show up and they're, you know, super successful. Obviously the franchise immediately, you know, starts flying in the black after decades of being in the red in, in Boston. And those city and community officials started getting greedy and they wanted their cut. They wanted to start charging the Braves, you know, a lot of rent to stay at County Stadium. They wanted to tax the Braves. They no longer wanted to give the Braves breaks. And in the early 60s, about halfway through either the 60 or 61 season, um, County Stadium no longer allowed you to bring in carry-ins. Up until that point, people could bring their own beer into a stadium, which, you know, you think today that is the most ludicrous thought in the world when, you know, they're charging anywhere from 6 to $10 for a cup of beer. But back, you know, during the heydays of the Braves' success in the 50s, a lot of people would buy two tickets, one ticket to sit in and another ticket to put their beer cooler. And they would just sit there with a 12-pack of beer and watch a baseball game, drinking their Schlitz or their Pabst or or their blats and, you know, county and city officials wanted to crack down on that and wanted to start getting a cut of that. So they said, you can't bring your beer in anymore. You have to buy our beer. And obviously at the time, Milwaukee was, you know, the center of the universe for beer manufacturing. And as you can imagine, the local residents really took offense to that. And uh, the Braves lost a lot of fans at that point. And it just, the way it was handled, it, it, the, the, the carry-in ban happened halfway through the season, so it really felt like a cash grab. And, you know, the, just the, the way it was rolled out was really fumbled, and it left a really bad taste in everybody's mouth, especially since the product on the field no longer matched, you know, you know the success it had in previous years. And that's where you see the, the real dip in attendance and you know in a lot of ways the braves never recovered from that beer ban even you know like a year or two later they uh reinstituted that you could bring your own carry-ins but at that point nobody cared you know the 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 well had been poisoned so to speak that's you know that's really interesting because i i wonder too if that actually so i wonder if that was a a league thing where, where they they uh you know that move kind of maybe was a became a league thing, right? It sounds like that's the kind of the beginnings of what are today known as pouring rights, right? Where there's an yeah. ex- exclusive, you know, soft drinks as well as beer. Um, you know, where there's an exclusivity to what can be poured, obviously, uh, uh, you know, for 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 financial gain, right? For the for the team and the uh, and the stadium. Yeah, and you know, at the time, Milwaukee was the first city, and County Stadium was the first stadium to kind of institute those rules. So, you know, the idea that that happened in, you know, the the center of the, the brewing universe, you know, where, you know, a big chunk of your fan base worked for the breweries, um, you know, it, it, it couldn't have happened in a worse place. And the fact that Milwaukee was the, the franchise that crashed that glass ceiling, you know, it just... You know, it just it was bad timing, bad, bad place, bad time. Do you think our friend Fred Miller had something to do with it, uh, maybe to the benefit of, of the Miller Brewing Company or was that? Am I just reading no, it? No, Fred Miller died 
in 54 in a plane accident. Him and his son were going on a hunting expedition and um, he had died in 54. And that will transition to the, the next phase of the Braves history um, because rumor had it that Lou Perini promised to sell the franchise to Fred Miller when Lou Perini no longer wanted to own the Braves. And so when Fred Miller died in 54, that changed that timeline. And as the Braves were struggling, you know, Lou Perini decided to sell the team in the early 60s. And Bill Bartholomew and his his group out of Chicago, you know, became the front runners and ultimately the, the buyers of the Braves. But, you know, if you ask, anyone and you can definitely go back and you know look at interviews and, and the history books you know for, for all intense purposes it was the Braves were Fred Miller's team to buy when Luprini decided to sell it and his death completely changed the fortunes of the franchise if Fred Miller lived the Braves would likely still be in Milwaukee that's really interesting and it's, it's also unfortunate too that uh, given yeah. uh, Miller's, uh, you know, early exuberance for the team and, and arguably driving force behind the scenes to get the team to Milwaukee, he was unable to really see the uh, <clears throat> the, the the success in the later part of the decade. I didn't realize that he had passed in this in '54. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was a shock, and um, you know, you 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 get you know, you you talk to the players, you talk to. You know, the, the people that were in the clubhouse or the front office, you know, or even when I talked to David Perini, you know, Lou Perini's son, it's like all indications were that, you know, it was Fred Miller's team once Lou decided he no longer wanted to own the team. And, you know, so that left Lou Perini looking for prospective buyers when he wanted to sell the team in the early 60s. All right, well, let's segue into Bartholomew, who, by the way, is still with us. I think he's uh, closing in on his yeah. 90th birthday soon. I don't, uh, you know, he'd be an interesting uh, conversation. I don't know if he's, uh, uh, you know, uh, willing or able, frankly, to have a conversation about this. But uh, based on your uh, your uh, investigations, both for book and, uh, and for film, uh, maybe you can give us some sense of sort of how he came into the picture and, and sort of what was in his mind by taking over the team for Perini uh, in 60, what, one, two? Yeah. Yeah. What here, here's something that's, you know, fascinating is after I wrote the book, um, you know, and the Wisconsin historical society press, you know, set up these opportunities for me to speak to, to groups, you know, you know, either like lions clubs or rotary clubs or, you know, you know, libraries or book signings at, um, you know, like at a Barnes and Noble, um, you know, I would all, often get up in front of a group and, you know, I'm, I, I was born after the Braves moved. So I came at this project with a very pragmatic perspective. It, you know, I love the Braves. I appreciated what they did for the city, but I also didn't bleed and sweat and cry and cheer with them every game along the way. You know, the, the Braves are already history in Milwaukee by the time I was born. And I would get in front of these groups and I could see them looking back at me. And these are, you know, men and women who 
we're at County Stadium for Warren Spahn's no hitter or, you know, you know, Hank Aaron's pennant clinching home run. And they would just look at me and be like, oh, are you here to introduce your dad? Because <laughs> you're too young to care about the Braves. And, you know, I, my response would always be, you know, if I was up here talking about Abraham Lincoln, nobody would discount what I do or don't know because I wasn't alive when Lincoln was alive. I ended up doing a lot of research and having a lot of conversations and personal memories and, you know, moments in time where I personally witnessed history aren't playing into, um, you know, my ability to tell the story. And Bill Bartholome is a prime example of that because I had the pleasure of interviewing him for our PBS documentary, A Brave's New World, uh, that we did with Milwaukee Public Television. And he was very nice. He was very gracious. And first and foremost, like Lou Perini, he was a businessman. And even though he grew up on the north side of Chicago, you know, he looked at the Braves as a financial investment. And as much as I believe in his heart, he wanted to keep the Braves in Milwaukee. At that point, um, you know, he realized the Braves were damaged. You know, they, they had a, they had an image problem, you know, as far as, you know, the city loved them, but there was a lot of infighting between the organization and the County Board of Supervisors at the time. And the city, you know, had switched mayors at this point and was definitely moving away for being, you know, very progressive. And they, you know, the, also the financial limitations that Milwaukee presented with the onset of television, which in the sixties was exploding, you know, Milwaukee, um, you know, Milwaukee was very limited and Bill Bartholomew, you know, saw all of this, realized the apathetic, you know, fan base, um, and, you know, decided that he wasn't going to, you know, the Braves are not going to be a wise investment if they stayed in Milwaukee. So then he started shopping the franchise. And this is after, um, you know, the Braves even had a stock sale similar to what the, the Green Bay Packers did or have done throughout history. And the Packers have always had resounding results. But, you know, when the Braves did it in Milwaukee, hardly anybody bought stock. So that fundraising attempt to kind of create some equity in the franchise, you know, really proved how apathetic the fan base was. And that's when Bill Bartholomew started looking elsewhere. Why Atlanta? Well, um, first and foremost, television, because in the 60s, you know, television was exploding. This is when, you know, the NFL and then obviously the AFL, you know, were exploding. Television was becoming a very financially um, gratifying medium, especially for sports. And Milwaukee, it, where Milwaukee is located, it's, it's boxed in because to the south, you have Chicago. To the west at that point, you had, uh, you know, Minnesota. And to the east, you have Lake Michigan, and there isn't much to the north. So Milwaukee's television 
market was very small with very little growth potential. And Atlanta, like I mentioned earlier, lured the Braves to their city with the same business model Milwaukee did. They, they built a, a stadium, you know, that was ready to move in. And then they started courting baseball teams and the Furman Bisher, who is a Atlanta journal constitution sports writer wrote a great book outlining, you know, a blow by blow of how Atlanta lured the, the Braves from Milwaukee. And it, it almost plays out identical to what Milwaukee did to get the Braves out of Boston. And as far as television goes, Atlanta offered the Braves a television market, uh, everything south of the Mason-Dixon line and, you know, east of the Mississippi. So, you know, you have, you know, all of those southeastern states, you know, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee, you know, you know, southern part of, you know, Virginia, the Carolinas. You know, it was, it was enormous. And Atlanta also had a lot of um, corporate sponsors that, you know, Milwaukee still had Miller, but Atlanta offered up Coca-Cola and Kodak and dozens of other really big franchises because at the time Atlanta was, you know, the unofficial capital of the South and was a, a booming city. So, they were very hungry for baseball and they essentially extended an offer. You know, the Bartholomew and his group could not refuse because from a business standpoint, it was the smart thing to do. And, you know, you take away passion and loyalty and tradition. And if you just look at the numbers on a spreadsheet comparing the two, it's a slam dunk. There is, there is no question from a financial standpoint, why the Braves moved to Atlanta. Personally, it's sad because I would have loved to have grown up, you know, with the tradition of the Milwaukee Braves. But, um, you know, with ignorance being bliss, I grew up a Milwaukee Brewers fan. And, and you know, I'm happy because they've created some really fun traditions and fun memories along the way. But, uh, you know, Bartholomew and his group, you know, once they – they, you know, check the math. There was, there was no stopping their move and major league baseball knew it as soon as it, you know, the offer was extended and there was no stopping the Braves moving. It was, it was, you know, a manifest destiny, if you will, where baseball was going to move into the South. The Braves happened to be the team to do it first. And October 64 is when he announced that they were moving to Atlanta. It seems like he also though was trying to do that uh, somewhat quickly because apparently Kansas City was also in the mix to go to Atlanta too, right? Yeah. Uh, the A's, um, of course. Yeah. Finley was, um, Charles Finley was, you know, shopping his, his athletics franchise around and ultimately he took him to Oakland, but, um, you know, and he had already moved him from Philadelphia. He, he was definitely an opportunist. And, um, yeah, so there was, you know, this urban arms race, you know, happening and, you know, Atlanta was the, the crown jewel at the time. And, you know, you know, much like Milwaukee with, uh, the, the, the St. Louis 
Browns, who eventually became the Baltimore Orioles. Um, you know, the A's were also being courted, which, you know, kind of forced Bartholomew's hand and, and he, you know, moved the team, you know, announced the move. And then, you know, the city of Milwaukee fought back and it got caught up in the courts, which created the lame duck season of 1965, where, you know, the, the move was kind of stuck in the courts, but it's really hard to, to keep a franchise from moving. You know, if it's, if a franchise wants to move, and that's ultimately what happened. Well, let's talk. Let's maybe this is a good way to sort of, you know, uh, as a Dean volunteer, let's talk about '65 because uh, while a lame duck season, uh, and it seemed to me that the uh, the first part of that season, the the fans uh, voiced their displeasure by uh, attending games in the low thousands uh, per game, mm-hmm. uh, and what happened, ironically, during the middle of the season, they got hot, didn't they? The team. Yeah, they got hot, but you know, it. it yeah, it's it's uh, you know, they got hot, and you know, they were in the pennant race for a while, but um, you know, like I mentioned, the well was really poisoned, and you know, my friends who, you know, were teenagers during those years, you know, remember that season and and mentioned how it was really surreal because even if you went to County Stadium and here you are watching the hot hometown team. You know, there was there was somewhat of a disconnect because you, you knew they were moving and you knew it was inevitable. And even though you held out hope that the courts might reverse it, then you had a team stuck in a city that didn't want to be there and and an ownership group that, you know, didn't want to be there. And and, um, you know, that's why, you know, they I think were just north of 500,000 fans, like 555,000 fans over the course of, of the season. And, um, you know, from, for all accounts, it was a very surreal season because here you had this team that was in the pennant race until the end, but, you know, nobody, nobody cared. And, you know, the, the manager, Bobby Bragan was, was not a popular manager as far as, you know, he you could he was definitely branded a company man and kind of an extended mouthpiece of Bartholomew and his group at the time. So, you know, the, the the local press didn't warm up to him. And yeah, it was it was at that point it was such a toxic environment that, you know, it was it was it was a sad lame duck season. Yeah, it's interesting. Very interesting. But it also seems though to me that uh the uh the the snit uh, that the uh, the the team and and I guess in before '65 was uh, declared basically as a as a must play season in lame duck fashion. Um, it seemed that the Major League Baseball did, and I don't know when. This is a good question. Maybe you don't know the answer to this. Uh, did sort of take notice and uh, along the way figure out that uh, they had to come back to Milwaukee at some point, and ultimately the Brewers in '70 uh, filled that gap. Yeah, you know, one of the positives that came out of the the Braves moving is Bud Selig, um, you know, who, you know, his, his story has been well-documented as he rose from a car salesman to commissioner of baseball. Um, You know, he created a, a, you know, a corporation to essentially keep the Braves in Milwaukee. He tried to stir up local ownership to, to buy the team from Bartholomew, but Bartholomew had no interest in selling because, you know, the, the big fat carrot dangling in Atlanta gave 
Bartholomew no incentive to sell the team in Milwaukee because there was so much potential in Atlanta. Um, but the, you know, the lemonade that came out of the lemons is that Bud Seeley got involved in baseball and he, that's where he started, you know, shaking hands and meeting the, the, the power players in baseball. And after the Braves moved, he, um, helped organize, um, the Chicago White Sox came up to County Stadium, you know, before the Brewers arrived in 70 for some exhibition games for some, uh, regular season games over the course of, uh, some of those seasons in the late sixties. And then ultimately Bud Selig was the spearhead of the, the, you know, the, the, the ownership group that purchased the Seattle pilots, you know, essentially during spring training of 1970. And that's, you know, another, you know, fun irony is that, you know, the Milwaukee Brewers, you know, literally overnight went from being the Seattle pilots, to the Milwaukee Brewers and, you know, the, the people who, you know, were stitching uniforms were pulling off, you know, the letters pilots off the jerseys and type and stitching in brewers and pulling off the S's off their hats and stitching M's and, um, you know, and literally overnight, the, you know, Milwaukee got a baseball team again in the spring training of 1970. But, you know, a lot of that was because Bud Selig was so passionate about having baseball in Milwaukee. He was, he went out and did something about it. That's a story that I, I want to go on another episode, whether that's Jim Bouton, if he uh, is still able and willing to, to recount that story or, or perhaps, uh, you know, some some other folks in and around the sort of one year of the Seattle uh, pilots is a, obviously a, a fascinating story in its own right. OK, so let's uh, let's give a shout out, to, uh, Bill, to the uh, to the book and the two movies that you've done. You want to maybe just uh, explain to the audience the names of them uh, and uh that perhaps where they can be found and or the context for them. Yeah, the um yeah, I mean the the book is The Milwaukee Braves Heroes and Heartbreak, which is published by the Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Um, you know, it's still available in bookstores in uh southeastern Wisconsin and if not, you know, it's still in print, so it's, you know, you can get it on Amazon or you know, going to the Wisconsin Historical Society Press website, which is wisconsinhistory.org. And then when I did that, it led me down the, the rabbit hole, so to speak, to, to do a documentary in cooperation with the Wisconsin Historical Society Press and Milwaukee Public Television and PBS called A Brave's New World. And that's also available through the Wisconsin Historical Society and probably easily found on their website. Um, a Braves New World. And that is the documentary where we really follow the financial breadcrumbs of the Braves move from Boston to Milwaukee and then from Milwaukee to Atlanta and how the Braves spurned this urban arms race that ultimately resulted in communities competing against one another for major league sports clubs and, and justified baseball's manifest destiny West, where, like I mentioned earlier, Dallas, you know, Dallas got a team, Kansas City got a team, Minneapolis got a team, you know, the Dodgers and the Giants moving from New York to the West Coast is a direct result of Lou Perini's success in Milwaukee, because even Walter O'Malley quoted, uh, quoted that as, as his argument for why the Dodgers deserve better in Brooklyn. And if they can't get a better stadium and more parking in Brooklyn, He's going to Los Angeles because that's 
that's where baseball is headed. And he wanted, he wanted to be the first one there. And so that documentary was a lot of fun. I got to, you know, interview, you know, Del Crandall, Felix Mantilla, you know, and then also, you know, some of the, the people behind the scenes, you know, like Bill Bartholomew, and then, you know, some really decorated uh, Braves historians like Bobby and, and that's, you know, that was a lot of fun because writing a book is a very solitary experience. You, you know, you're sitting there, you know, hunkered over stats and newspaper articles and pulling quotes out of books and trans interviews, transcripts. And, and it's fun because you're almost like Indiana Jones, but with, you know, baseball history, but doing the documentary where, you know, you, you know, you get the, you know, we went down to Atlanta to interview um, some of the major players and, you know, we, you know, went to Chicago to interview Bartholomew and, and, you know, we were in Milwaukee and we got to, you know, uh, visit some archives, you know, of old Milwaukee Braves memorabilia and history. It's like, that was fun because that's one of those, you know, bucket list life memory moments where you're like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, holding, you know, a 1957, you know, world series ring, or, you know, I'm, I'm holding Eddie Matthews Jersey or, you know, here's, here's a stock certificate from when Bartholomew's group tried to rally financial support. And, you know, you're actually witnessing history and that was a lot of fun. And, um, along the way, we did a special for Fox Sports Wisconsin called Milwaukee Braves, the Golden Legacy, which was a celebration, the 50th anniversary celebration of the 1957 World Series championship team, which was held by the Milwaukee Braves uh, Historical Association. And um, I don't know if that DVD is still in print, but uh, I believe there's still copies floating around. But yeah, that was called Milwaukee Braves, the Golden Legacy. And that was you know, kind of commemorating the 1957 World Series team. So those those are the three projects that, um, you know, I did that were, you know, directly associated with the Braves. And, and along the way, I've written a few books on the Green Bay Packers, uh, including Green Bay Packers, um, Trials, Triumphs, and Traditions, which uh, celebrates, you know, especially the financial impact of the team through the years and how they are a financial anomaly. And then, um, the last book I wrote that has ties to Wisconsin is called uh, Some Like It Cold, uh, Surfing the Malibu of the Midwest. And that's about uh, two brothers in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, which is about 30 miles north of Milwaukee, who had a dream of surfing the world. You know, this is during the days of uh, Frankie and Annette and Beach Blanket Bingo and the Beach Boys and Gidget. And they had dreams of surfing the world, but Growing up in Sheboygan, they couldn't afford it, but they were so passionate about surfing, they brought the surfing world to Sheboygan, and now Sheboygan is one of the most cherished international surfing destinations. Um, and on a lot of professional surfers and, you know, even, even casual surfers' bucket lists of places to surf. So, I have been, I have been to Sheboygan. I, I live in northern Illinois. It lives about 30 miles north yeah. of Chicago, and I, I've been to Sheboygan. I didn't even know that. That's amazing. Yep. Yep. They, they, for 25 years, they hosted the Dairyland Surf Classic and which was the largest, uh, you know, freshwater surfing contest in the world. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of people call Sheboygan the Malibu of the Midwest. Yeah. It's, 
is a fascinating story. And that's one of those, you know, kind of like the Braves where I grew up hearing stories about these guys that surf Lake Michigan. And then, you know, my curiosity finally bit me and, and I, I called them up and said, are you guys for real? And they said, yep. And we started talking and then it turned out to be a very fun book. <laughs> yeah. So you West coast uh, surf snobs, uh, you know, you can't go to good bratwurst in the Malibu. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> the real Malibu. Um, anything else you want to plug, uh, including your, uh, your day job and, uh, what you do for a living and, and all that fun, fun stuff. How can people get in touch no, with you? I mean, yeah, I mean, probably, probably the best way, um, people can get in touch with me is, um, you know, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at Pobletic. You know, you, you type in Pobletic into a Google search, odds are I'm, I'm going to be the guy that, that pops up just because, you know, there's only a handful of us on the planet. And doing, doing these Packers and Braves and, and surfing projects, you know, were, they, they were passion projects. It's, it's one of those where, you know, you have your day job that feeds your pocketbook and then you have these passion projects that feed your soul. And and so to have the opportunity to, to do them, I've 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 been very blessed and very fortunate because, um, you know, I've I've had a lot of bucket list moments through the years doing these. And, uh, you know, you know, like and, and who doesn't love to talk about the Milwaukee Braves, right? Well, and there you go. And so I, I'm sure another element for your bucket list uh, concluded uh, today with this conversation <laughs> on this little podcast we call Good Seats of the Vote. So, uh, Bill, thank you. This has been awesome. Um, you know, I, I especially think it's it's especially interesting that, um, you know, uh, we, we've, we've delved in a lot of teams and leagues and all those kinds of things. And, and clearly a lot of them, not all, but a lot of these stories emanate from some personal relationship or memories, maybe from childhood or whatever. Uh, but this is interesting. I mean, you you you've delved into a story that uh, you had, if you will, no personal uh, interest in, no dog in the hunt, if you will. Uh, and and I think it's uh, it's a testament to uh, how you uh, went about the process, even though you had no um, you know personal relationship with the team, having actually been born after the team was was there. Uh, so very interesting. Yeah, I still love the Milwaukee Braves, and you know. I'm fortunate I got to experience them through through these projects because, you know, their 13 years in Milwaukee were special. You know, they, you know, they never had a losing season, you know, but more importantly, they ignited a community and they galvanized the community for a while. And, you know, the likes of which have, have not been experienced since, you know, with all these other franchises, you know, now, nowadays, franchises seem to be moving around almost as much as some of the players in free agency, you know. So to to experience that and, you know, have some historical perspective, you know, was it was special. All right. There's our chat with Bill Pavletic, a uh, very interesting one about the Milwaukee Braves of the uh, National League in baseball. 1953 to 1965, short-lived, but a passionate love affair, very much so, at least in the early days uh, in Milwaukee, and um, a uh, part of Braves history that uh, seems to be uh, overlooked, um, and that's why we kind of delve into these conversations. And, you know, look, some great stars, uh, some all-stars like Warren Spahn and uh, Hank Aaron, of course, Uh, this is amazing just memories of, of a team that, uh, you know, won the world championship in 1957. It was very competitive, was, you know, gangbusters at the gate. And look, the legacy of the team 
uh, in what it meant for uh, a uh, a growing nation, a prosperous one, and uh, a rethink of how professional sports uh, and their franchises were spread across that country, or potentially so as populations expanded south and west uh, and beyond the East Coast bastions and Midwest bastions of where baseball and pro sports had been. So a lot of uh, not-so-obvious uh, things that uh, the Milwaukee version of the Braves uh, led to, uh, not only in uh, Major League Baseball, but professional sports generally. And uh, we thank Bill for uh, his writings and his film and his conversation with us. Uh, so promotionally, uh, make sure that you find that book that uh, Bill wrote. It's called Milwaukee Braves, Heroes and Heartbreak. Uh, it is published by Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Uh, it is available wherever good books are found. You'll find a link to it uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just look for the episode with Bill and the Milwaukee Braves and you will find a link to it. You will also find there uh, a link to uh, one of the two uh, documentary films that we uh, discussed uh, that's his 2009 uh, work called A Brave's New World. Don't forget the plural there, A Brave's New World. Uh, that was uh, produced in conjunction with and for Milwaukee Public Television. That is also available in DVD form. Uh, and again, you can find a link to that uh, on our website for uh, under our episode. I'm sure you can find it wherever good uh, books and film are found, uh, including Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all those kinds of great places. Um, for us, uh, we want to make sure that you... Uh, Remember that uh, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com, as we said, is the place to always go to find out what's going on with our show. We've got so many more things lined up, uh, not only including uh, just great guests, but uh, some other uh, fun stuff, uh, hopefully a Patreon page where you can kind of uh, help support the show and get some goodies and some shout outs and all that kind of stuff. we got a newsletter in, in, in the pipeline uh, and just some amazing, uh, hopefully on-site uh, interviews uh, and all kinds of other good stuff. So uh, keep tuned. Uh, if there's a topic or a sport or a team or whatever that you haven't heard that you're interested in, not only let us know, but keep listening because uh, you never know when we finally will get to uh, your your topic and your uh, your subject matter. So uh, thank you for listening and, and staying with us. Uh, Twitter, at Good Seats Still. Please visit us there. Uh, Facebook, there's a page devoted to us, Good Seats Still Available. Instagram, a daily uh, fun little uh, uh, image uh, of historical note uh, can be found at Good Seats Still Available on Instagram. Um, so thanks for all that. And again, of course, our thanks, continued thanks to our friends at Podfly Productions. That's podfly.net if you need uh, podcast production uh, help and uh, support. You can't find better people than Eric Begay, Jerry Payne, Corey Coates, David Gregerson, the entire team at Podfly Productions, podfly.net, telling that Tim Hanlon and or the good seats still available podcast sent you. Okay, I'm done. Thanks so much for listening. We'll take care. I hope you all take care for yourself and uh, we'll talk to you hopefully next week with another great episode. Take care. Bye-bye.